Welcome to The Single Source, a podcast series brought to you by global financial service provider Apex Group. The Single Source hosts a diverse mix of industry veterans, rising stars, finance experts and investment enthusiasts to discuss all things financial services, as well as the things that really matter to Apex, because we are more than just a financial services provider and are here to drive positive change for a more sustainable future in the industry. Hi, Blair McPherson from Apex Group, where I head up the capital introductions and research business. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by Charles Morris from Baytree. Charles, how are you? Very well. Nice to be here, Blair. Thank you for the invitation. Appreciate you taking the time, Charles, as we're always looking on behalf of our investor clients, real insights in specific market segments where there may be a lot of noise, a lot of information, but we really try to get to the people who are actually building things rather than those who talk about those who are building things. So I'm really interested to learn the story of Tree in the digital asset space with regards to blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and the fun component of what you're building out. But Charles, I think it might be a good idea just to start with your background, where you came from, and learn a little bit more about yourself. Thank you. I joined HSBC, or James Capel as it was known then, in 1998, having come out of the army and had an engineering background and was sort of science at schools, so a natural flow into the the sort of econometrics of financial markets was always my was my interest. And in 2002, we launched the Absolute Return Service in a bear market when clients were screaming at us for beating benchmarks on the way down. I think people are about to experience what that feels like once again. The last 10 years in portfolios have been have been a bit bit of an easy ride. And in 2002, we launched this absolute return multi-asset service, which really was unbenchmarked. And it was pretty pioneering at the, at the time. A lot of fun um, over the next few years to meet some seriously interesting people from investment banks, from the hedge fund world, you know, you name it. I met them probably at some point. And making big allocation decisions, you know, as a, by the end of it, we were a $3 billion product and it was very successful. The problem with the credit crisis, not the portfolio returns, which weren't that bad, really. It went down 14%, which was not the end of the world, but it was the regulatory environment afterwards made life very difficult to continue within the bank. And the asset management business at HSBC basically went passive. And so people like me became dinosaurs and I had to go and find something else to do. And in 2013, I stumbled across Bitcoin. I watched the $100 breakout. I was fascinated. Unfortunately, I didn't own any, but then I, I, I bought a little bit to find out what it was all about. You know, when I say a little bit, a few hundred dollars worth and found like-minded folk and just wanted to know more. It was my view that digital assets were going to go somewhere, no idea where. My early view was that Bitcoin was the AOL and the Google was coming. I've been wrong about that. And actually, I think that Bitcoin is very much the, the gold of the space, the gold of the internet, not in competition with real gold. I hope you'll get to that. And built Bytree to analyze the blockchain. I knew there was financial information inside the blockchain. I just didn't know where it was. There must be links to how price would perform with the goings on in the network. And the simple conclusion, which is still true today, is a busy blockchain is very bad, valuable because you've created a network and a silent idle blockchain is worth absolutely nothing. So there's no IP value in the code, if you will. It's more of the fact you've brought a lot of people together with a common purpose and that's where the value is. And that's the bit that I think Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger don't quite understand. So, so Bytree, what do we do? Data and research and asset management in crypto. We have a crypto hedge fund and we recently launched with 21 shares, a, a golden Bitcoin exchange traded product in Switzerland. So talk to me a little bit about the creation of Bytree. I mean, that's early doors in this sector. So how did you find people? Obviously, a wealth of background within banking, financial services, capital markets generally know how it works from trade to settlement and the kind of the old world 
Uh, you're inquisitive around new networks in the blockchain, cryptocurrencies. How did you meet up with people who could build infrastructure, who had the same type of vision as you, people you could learn from? Can you talk to me about that around the creation of Bytree and how you came together? Yes, yeah, so Bytree, I mean, for the first few years, it was a hobby project. It wasn't really what you'd call a business. I mean, there was no revenue and there were no people. It was one person. And the one person wasn't even me. The one person was my co-founder, Mark, who was a coder, whose father had worked at HSBC and said, oh, you should talk to my son. He could probably help you. So I called this random guy when I met him for lunch in Portsmouth. And he, as it happened, had been had been interested in Bitcoin and had been reading about it. And I said, well, I need someone to dive inside the blockchain and extract data. He said, well, let's go. He bought a very large computer and off he went. And I think we, you know, it took a long time to get the results. We had simple results behind the scenes before we had something that was commercially useful. It took quite a long time. So it was very much a hobby project until about three years ago. You know, I was still working in the city and I uh, got James Bennett to come and be CEO and said, okay, it's time to scale up until we raised a little bit of money and he did a good job of that. And then two years ago, I decided to come back full time. And it was good timing because, you know, James was pretty happy to go and move on to do something else. So he remains on our board. He's the youngster that drives our marketing and image. But, you know, it's, it's the old grey hair like me that really focus on the financial side of it. I'm not talking about the PL, I'm talking about the vision of Bitcoin, gold, markets, how it all fits together, why it's important, uh, and that sort of journey. So, yeah. so I really sit here at Bytree as the chief investment officer. I'm obviously group chairman, it's largely my company, but it, it, operationally, I'm the, the chief investment officer, so, so I get to focus on the bit that really works for me. And I think it's the yep. So tell me a little bit about, I think you said three years ago, was it an aha moment? Something changed in the market? Something changed on the technology or infrastructure side that enabled, I suppose, kind of data components to become a viable product then a viable business? What was the change that you went, oh, right, this is going to work. There is a market. Answer is a bit of a strange one because... I worked at HSBC for 17 years. And in that time, and having come out of the army, I was very institutionalized. Yeah. And I feel much more, I feel quite released today, but it's taken time. When you work for a very large company with you know, more power by, than the British army by about three times, which is what HSBC was then, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. You kind of assume that if you want to launch a fund or, or do anything, you need a skyscraper full of compliance officers or risk managers and these kind of things. And it really wasn't aware that it was possible to do these things in a much smaller capacity, despite the fact that I've spoken to hedge funds for years. It hadn't, the penny hadn't really dropped. And so it was only by getting out there into the real world and working for a couple of firms as a consultant that I really figured out that actually much smaller operations can be not only really dynamic, good and successful, but also robust at the same time by using yeah. third-party relationships. And I think, you know, Apex obviously plays into that in a big way. And that's very much the 21st century of financial services. And that's yeah. the exciting thing for me was the reason to say, okay, let's go and build things and we can be the intellectual property at the center and go and use partners to help us uh, roll out products. So that was really the big thing. But going back to 2015, you know, why did I create a data business rather than a, a sort of Coinbase or an exchange or a, something else or a fund management business? I, genuinely, I thought it was all illegal and I, you know, you just needed all these people. And, you know, I had no experience in cap raising, despite the fact that I've been selling, selling my own fund for years. It was a completely different skill set in my eyes. Yeah. Um, you know, I did look at about launching a Bitcoin fund. It was all great, but the problem was that, you know, no one was taking Bitcoin seriously. So I had no idea how to sell this thing. Had I known it was going to go up 100 times in the next two years, it wouldn't have mattered if I only had a small amount of capital to start with. So it wouldn't have actually mattered that it was small, but it wasn't obvious at the time. Mm. No, interesting. So let's look at the different components of Bytree, kind of the data component, what that provides to the marketplace, I suppose, as a service um, information provider. Um, and I'd really like to get into the, the asset management side um, after that. Can you, you can walk through that, the, the kind of 
the initial business and the, is it still the core business, the data side? Um, yeah, but I think that it's it's it's, it's going to be. I mean, we've only launched the DTP. We'll come to that in a second. But I think we're going to asset management. But uh, the data side, it started off with with live blockchain data, and as I, as I was uh, alluded to earlier, you can value a blockchain by you know measuring its busyness or the network effect or call it what you will. Hmm. And uh, so we do that, and you know the metrics are are useful they're not perfect they were better when the blockchain was younger because there are now many other uh, factors to consider for example institutional fund flows for example derivative activity the role of stable coins you know there are actors on the blockchain which didn't used to exist so i think that our data was absolutely a slam dunk um 2017 before and pretty good up until 2019. it's still very useful and i wouldn't want to live without it but i don't think it, it captures the whole story because the the thing about uh crypto that's moved on um so much so that that you know you've got you, you there's a sort of struggle to keep up and and i think my idea was to to analyze hundreds of blockchains but it's a very very complex business and we're a small firm with seven people and we just simply don't have the manpower so we decided uh to make it a, we decided to stick with what we got which is you know cover the bitcoin blockchain properly which is what we do um and and, and then just do a technical research we've got a trend following system that, that that's pretty useful and i spoke to some you know i was always sort of embarrassed about that thinking God, could it really just come down to trend following and i've obviously invested in ctas and and, yeah. and a relative strength fund and, and and these sorts of things so i'm, so I'm quite expert in in, in, in these concepts mm. um but it but it sort of seemed to me there had to be fundamentals because the mission statement was always to have um, uh, research data services products to sell to the financial services industry when they were ready. Yeah, and and it was only in the last couple of years you got you kind of smelt that for the first time. Um, and I think Ruffer buying Bitcoin in October twenty twenty was a, was a big moment for me. Yeah. That was you know the the, the big boys are here. You know, the people who actually think about this properly and don't just sort of say Ponzi scheme, magic beams all that kind yeah. of stuff. They, they were the first one there in a big way. And then the whole lot of hedge fund managers started rocking up and having an opinion. And my view was, you know, come on, CIOs everywhere, have a view. I mean, it's perfectly okay for you to say you don't like it, but please think yeah. about it. Yeah. And then the FCA came along and said, um, we're not going to cooperate with crypto in the UK investment scene. Now, behind the scenes, you know, obviously they, they want to have a big, they want all the jobs and they want the innovation and they want the companies of tomorrow, but they don't want in, the retail investors buying it in their portfolios. And that, that basically means um, that pretty much any fund manager anywhere is struggling to invest in the crypto yeah. sector. Yeah, no, I agree on people having a view caveat that is always if they've done the research and have the knowledge um <laughs> otherwise it's a few um well, the only view i'll shoot you for not you but one okay. is, um, is, is what they were all saying in 2017 if they're still saying that you know i love blockchain but i hate bitcoin i mean if you're saying that you deserve a kick in the nuts because you really <laughs> exactly well let's let's learn a little bit more on the, on the kind of the asset management side how you're allocating um your investment strategy you know, just 50,000 feet or maybe a little bit below. Uh, can you talk about your strategy a little bit? The whole point is uh, about Bitcoin is is to own it. And we can we can go through the reasons why, but you want to own that. And as an asset manager, you think, well, hang on, if, if I want to, if I want to own that, how do I beat it? That's the sort of natural question. You know, you mm. say, invest in emerging markets because they've got a great future. Great, but how do I beat it? Is always the question. So we're just trying to do that. And we're not trying to do that through um, um, any clever tricks other than um, good, honest research, 
understand the space, own the good stuff that stands to outperform. So we're looking for growing networks. We're looking for honesty, credibility, adoption, um, security, all of these sorts of things. And it's the fun bit has been rethinking because, you know, with, with good old companies, you look at cash flow and taxes and um, returns and these things. And, um, and, and you, have to, you have to sort of reinvent the whole thing. And start from the beginning and say, okay, well, what makes a blockchain tick? And it's the growing network. Um, but then it's also the risks because you can have, and you've got to differentiate between the hype cycles and the actual underlying network growth. Um, and that's important. And I think for people who aren't particularly familiar with crypto, you know, I think the exciting thing here is that Bitcoin has, has won. And in my opinion, it has no credible competition. And what I mean by that is credible competition. So the, yes, there's lots of uh, pretend startups that would like to be Bitcoin, but none of them will achieve it. Now, at the, the, the you world- say that from almost a liquidity standpoint and- Yeah, I mean, that's the great point, isn't it? Liquidity itself has value. You know, what's the difference between gold and silver mm. um, economic, you know, from, from an economic perspective? You know, one's got $180 billion of turnover a day of, you know, volume a day, and the other one doesn't, Yeah, you know? And so they behave completely differently. So it's not like um, that the, the silver's um, cheap gold. Or, yeah. or, it, it, there's far more to that. It, it you know deserves. It commands a lower premium because um, you know it just doesn't have the financial uh, depth that yeah. the gold market does. And so Bitcoin's got that depth. And I think once you've got that depth, it's pretty hard to uh, to take it away. Hmm. And you know, so why do we have other other cryptos? So you know, there's lots of copycats of Bitcoin. They're all worthless. Focus on Bitcoin only. That's easy. Next, we come to the sort of what we call the layer one blockchains, things like Ethereum. And, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, the, everyone loves this, the stable coin. Um, $200 billion pretty, pretty much of stable coin exists somewhere on various mm -hmm. blockchains and they get moved around. Now, if you want to uh, send some money on the Ethereum blockchain, you have to buy a stamp, um, a bit like the good old post office. And the problem is a stamp can cost you $50, $80, um, when demand for blockchain um, blockchain capacity is high, yeah. So if you want to do a ten thousand dollar USDC, that's a circle um, uh, uh, dollar, mm -hmm. um, you know, it could cost you eighty dollars, whether it's ten thousand dollars, one thousand dollars, or a million dollars, which is um, you know great for the big boys, but not for everyone else. Yeah. And, and of course, one assumes with computing, everything's going to have to be really cheap because that's the point, and that's not cheap. And I think eighty dollars for a transaction is is a lot. Mm. Um, and so there are other designs coming along saying, well, we can do it cheaper and, 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 and faster and all the rest of it. And they will. So Ethereum has a lot of competition, despite being a very uh, uh, useful and brilliant platform. It has competition in a way that Bitcoin doesn't. So we're analyzing those competitors. So we say, yes, we like we like Ethereum and, and, and what are the competitors like? There are also crypto exchanges that can have tokens. Um, and then there are the more esoteric sort of youthful things like the metaverse and gaming and NFTs and that kind of stuff. So but there's a lot going on. I think you just have to have an open mind in this space, understand that the innovation is generally positive and it's a lot of creative destruction. This is the only asset class you'll ever find with a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> the fact is that you know you have sort of pictures of apes all over the place. It's just it just makes you smile as you're as you're going to work. It is it, it's funny. Yeah. Well, what about you know, mentioning smiling that I as they kind of went to risk management. So not to take a smile off, but has anything changed? You know, you've managed me for a long time uh, from your approach to risk management in this asset class, in this segment, at a structural or level or even emotional level when you're managing money? 
Yeah, point. there's there's a, a made a big change for me in the last year. But before we get to that, um, Bitcoin's volatility is around sixty seven percent. You know, we now consider that to be low, which is quite hilarious yeah. in in crypto land. That's sort of normal and fine and low. Um, Near protocol is one hundred and thirty seven, mm-hmm. and this is where Bitcoin was a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's hilarious. We get used to these things. What's changed for me? is that I believe that the cyclicality, which differentiates from volatility of Bitcoin, is actually falling very rapidly. So the big, big price swings that we're used to, you know, 87% or 93% bear markets, they're not going to happen again. Um, you know, Bitcoin looks well underpinned at $30,000. So I think even a financial shock, where you'd be very lucky to get a chance to get it below that. Now, that didn't used to be my view. It used to be my view that we had a standard hype cycle. Up it went, up you know, up it goes, and then down it goes a lot. Yeah. And um, and now I think that it's it's flattening. If you if you think about the two you know, the halving events, which I won't go into detail, but basically, um, the, you know, the, the first halving event in 2012, the price went up a hundred times from halving to high, and then the next the next one in 2016, sort of 30 times, uh, and then the most recent one for 2020, around seven times. Yeah. So you can see that that appreciation is um, is slowing, and the drawdown drowns, the drawdowns are narrow. Yeah. Uh, you know, a Bitcoin a Bitcoin bear now looks more like sixty percent than rather than ninety three. I mean, you know, laugh for old, the old world world is still laughing, but to us it's huge progress. Yeah, and um, the value buyer is coming. Yeah. So, question with regards to the way in which you engage with your current investors and those that um, you're looking to engage with around your approach to communication. There must be a lot of education, um, which kind of brings to who are the investor types that you are looking to, you know, be a a good partner, a good fit for your fund? um, Yeah. Well, I think we've had to rely on high net worths until now. We haven't had much luck with um, what I would describe as an institutional investor. And, um, And that's fine because... You know, I'm not. I'm not in a hurry to raise gazillions of assets. I just want to do it right and know that when the time comes, they'll come. Yeah. Because you know, I think that you can. You know what it's like in asset management. There are times when it doesn't matter what you do, um, you could sponsor the Super Bowl and you know have supermodels turning up for meetings, and still people aren't interested. But there are other times of the cycle when you cut when the phone just doesn't stop ringing. Yeah. And so you know, why why would you waste your life? Um, trying to sell something that won't be sold. So I think we just do the right thing, put ourselves in the right position and, and make sure that the, you know, our phone rings when the time comes. Yeah. And, um, and that's a patience game. So it, it, it is, it's, I'm very happy with the, with the way things are and how we are positioned. And, and I, never feel we, I never feel we're quite ready. I always feel there's two more things we need to do before you, know, you dare pick up the phone to George Soros and say, am I ready for you now? Yeah. <laughs> and um, and so we're always doing that every day. It's like, well, how can we fix this? How can we improve that? And yeah. uh, and the bottom line is, you know, every few months you sort of zoom out and look back and think, my God, we actually are doing a pretty good job here, and it's um, it's all getting a lot better. Um, and, and and at all levels. But I think it's just you know, we want to stick to simplicity. It's really simple when you're trying to outperform Bitcoin. Just own stuff that can outperform Bitcoin in in the you know using standard uh, strategies from the past. You know, from the old yeah. world. Where, Risk adjustment, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's something volatile, own less. Very simple things. And the most, the easiest way to outperform Bitcoin is just to know what the absolute rubbish is out there and don't own it. Yeah. Um, so I think that to, to beat the top hundred is not a difficult job. To beat Bitcoin's a bit harder because in down markets, um, you know, most things will underperform. But yeah. I think that we're doing a pretty reasonable job there. 
um, we're showing good excess returns. Um, it's actually my colleague, Charlie Eric, who runs the hedge fund. I don't. Okay. Um, and what would, what would you use? Is it just an absolute return yeah. benchmark or do you have a... Uh, our, our benchmark's Bitcoin. Simple as it that. is Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. And um, if we can do a better job than that, then then great. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the project that's really got my name all over it is Bold, which is Bitcoin and Gold. Okay. And we just launched that um, a week ago. I went to Zurich and I rang the bell at the Six Exchange, and that was very exciting after 18 months of work. Fantastic. And we put together Bitcoin and, Bitcoin and Gold into an ETP. Okay. And hopefully this ETP is going to, going to, 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 um, to, find, to find its place in many, many portfolios because that's what it deserves to be. Yeah. And there's, there's a simple framework, really, where you've got in inflationary times, you know, we, we like gold, don't we? I mean, look at the 1970s, all the research written around that, commodities and so forth. And then in, in deflationary times or disinflationary times, we like 60-40 bond equity portfolios. Yeah. And um, that's not very hard to understand. And, 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 when, and when the world's expanding, we like equities and commodities, let's say. And when the world's um, uh, contracting, we like gold and bonds. So you've got this four-way framework. And golden commodities is a very nice place to be in times of inflation. And, th- and by the way, you could throw in some financial stocks as well. Yeah. I'm suggesting, um, and our research has taken us there, that Bitcoin is effectively a commodity. It behaves like a commodity. Um, limited supply, variable demand. Um, it's 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 volatile, um, and it likes um, it does best when inflation and bond yields are rising. In other words, when the economy is expanding or risk-on conditions, and there's, a, there's an inflationary bias to the system. Mm. And let's just look at gold and Bitcoin the last couple of years. You know, gold goes nuts in 2018, 19, 20. There's real interest rates are coming crashing down, as you'd expect it to. Yeah. And it peaks out in the middle of 2020 after a huge move because it's the first asset to truly understand the impact of the stimulus. And Bitcoin um, doesn't really understand that. It rebounds, it crashes and rebounds in the March 2020 um, COVID dip. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't start going up till October 2020 when, when gold's already cooling. So gold's done its job. It's gone to a premium um, in response to the stimulus. And now it's sort of, um, you know, peak for a while. Yeah. And, and then Bitcoin goes crazy as gold's coming down. So you've got this natural counter cyclicality, uh, which became obvious to quite a few people back then. Mm-hmm. And then in 2020, you had two occasions when Bitcoin goes up a lot and then down a lot. And both occasions, um, gold did the opposite thing. Okay. Gold picked up where Bitcoin where it went down. So you end up with this kind of blindingly obvious uh, counter cyclicality or natural negative correlation between the two assets provided we're in inflationary times. If there's a deflation shock a la 2008, not that Bitcoin existed, but if we had one of those, I'd expect both to go down. Yeah, and that's, um, that's interesting from a perspective, um, the, the correlation component would kind of almost negatively correlated when a lot of people's assumption is gold and Bitcoin really kind of serve the type, same type of purpose in an inflationary environment. Why are they so uncorrelated? Um, when we talk about correlation, we've got to be careful by what you know by, by um, what the numbers on the screen tell you, mm-hmm. and um, and what we actually mean by non-correlation, which is you know, they enhance portfolio diversification, and uh, and they don't always come to the same result. Yeah, but um, gold is for the old world. Gold is for the real world. It's the hard asset of the real world. You know, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger don't like gold. 
because it's unproductive. Well, of course it's unproductive. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't pay a yield. That's the point. What would it pay a yield in? It, only, it would only be useful if it paid a yield in gold. It wouldn't be useful to get a fiat yield because your whole point of gold is you're trying to escape from, from the perils of fiat when they come. In some countries that happens regularly. Um, other countries it happens rarely. Um, but it does happen. And um, central banks own it. And so the idea of gold's ridiculous is, is itself ridiculous. I never understood why so many family offices own gold, individuals own gold, mm. central banks own gold, but institutions don't. Mm. Um, it's all been a bit of a mystery to me. To me, it's the financial commodity. You know, so you've got oil and wheat and, 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 and natural gas flying all over the place yeah. um, with lots of volatility and you know, responding to real world issues. And gold's the kind of granddad of that sector and just says, well, you could just hold me instead without the volatility long term. Yeah. And, and Bitcoin's the same within digital assets or within crypto. And crypto has always been correlated to the NASDAQ uh, or more specifically to internet stocks, social media stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like, I mean, the, the intuitive evidence, you know, again, going away from mathematical correlation, but to, um, to the obvious, you know, 2013, 2017, and 2021 were all spectacular years um, for for those sort of areas, yeah, for tech and for Bitcoin, crypto. Yeah. And, and 2014, 2018, 2020, um, have all been pretty, pretty miserable years. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the obvious child's test is better than the maths. Yeah. And... Um, and that remains true. And no one's saying, you know, if we, if we can accept that Bitcoin's quite correlated to the NASDAQ, then, then no one's saying that gold's correlated to the NASDAQ. You know, quite, people would be quite happy to say they take an opposite position. But I would suggest that the, the difference between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ is obviously, I'm talking about correlation to performance, not the same thing. Obviously, Bitcoin's outperformed. But um, um, the big difference is in, in Bitcoin does have a, is more responsive, responsive to higher inflation than, than, than NASDAQ. Right. So thanks, Charles. Um, the, you're obviously out um, talking to other industry participants, trying to educate and grow the industry, um, being patient about it and want to focus on, you know, doing a good job and, and performance. How, and you mentioned regulators earlier as far as the restrictions in a you know, larger institutions and the compliance and risk side. How was how your engagement with regulators how up to speed are they? How comfortable are they? Where are we on that journey um, to um, create this, make this asset class, you know, uh, just another asset class? Well, I think that's an interesting question because the, I'm not, am I talking about UK or am I talking more globally? Yeah, that's a very good point. I would say globally. Okay. Know, the, the Swiss are the good guys. Yeah. Um, we should all go and live in Switzerland if we if we love crypto because they've they've opened the doors and said yep fine crack on they've got some uh, a good framework and they're very much leading the way and I, I suppose you know someone had to do it and I guess the others want to watch and and see where it takes them um, for me it's a shame because um, in the UK we've also got a vibrant crypto scene as do many other places like us you know places like the um, the Netherlands and Germany and mm-hmm. US, Canada, those sorts of places have um, also had very vibrant uh, blockchain scenes. And South Korea is another one that stands out. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's lots and lots of innovation happening. And I think the problem for most people is they don't really understand the purpose of it. 
And I just remind people of the internet in, I, I, I've digressed, but I, it's important to bring it back to regulation. Yeah. You know, back in 1999, I don't think the regulators thought much of dot-com stocks. And um, they went up a lot and the internet was absolutely terrible at that time. I mean, it did absolutely nothing useful yeah. um, and it didn't work very well. Yet, yet it was right, wasn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. it took some time to find the, the winners and the creative destruction and so forth, but, but the underlying message is right. And now, of course, there are government services on the internet, which is all the proof you ever need that it's not illegal. Yeah. And, um, and I think that crypto is going to follow that sort of journey. It's still a bit curious as to why we need um, computers to exchange value without a middleman. And... But why not? I mean, the you know we, we, we've disrupted the internet's disrupted uh, retail and media and and all sorts of things, and so it's having a go at finance, and it's a very very brave um, experiment. And all the people carrying out that experiment haven't learned the lessons from the past, so they're making all the same mistakes. But they don't last for long, and the ones that have bothered to study the past are the ones that survive. And if you take a um, FTT, the exchange, um, uh, sorry, FTX, the exchange. Um, and I forget the chap's name who runs it, but he's supposed to be a bit of a genius, or CZ who runs Binance. These are seriously bright people who have built incredible organizations. And they're saying that, you know, the, the, the technology, because they've worked in a space with all this volatility, their, their, their way of um, risk, their, their risk management techniques for margin calls and so forth are superior to the old world. And I believe it. I think it's absolutely, it, 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 it's, it's, if it wasn't true, they wouldn't be here. Yeah. And so I think this whole idea of instant settlement, T plus now, uh, no middleman, decentralized finance. You know, if I floated my company on the UK AIM market, can a, can a guy in Japan easily invest in it? No. And so you, you look at the, old, the, the current um, system that's very, very low. It's very insular to its own country. And I know the S&P's 500 stocks are kind of widely available. But, you know, if you take a normal country, um, and try and buy a stock, try and buy a Nigerian stock, try and buy a Philippines. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's like they don't exist. Yeah. And, and, I, and I would think that's, that's not how it should be. So I think we're building a new financial system. I think it'll take time to come, but I think when it comes, it'll be bigger and better and cheaper and more democratized um, and all the rest of it. So, you know, I think it's an exciting journey. And, and on that control point, central banks, um, now, obviously, they're looking into it. They're experimenting. They're trying to innovate, but not being able to control money has an impact on a lot. Um, not be able to control inflation, interest rates. Where are they on their journey? So this is something you can't really stop per se, but that is quite um, a um, disruptive component to the, especially when central banks run so much money now. Um, what are your thoughts on that and how they're going to adapt and utilize this um, to do their core function to serve societies? Yeah, um, and I'm glad you asked that because there's a, there's a letter on my um, website, bytree.com, January, um, January 2022, which is to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which was um, put to him by Steve Baker, MP in the UK Parliament. Mm -hmm. And and it, it looked at these things. And, and the message was, uh, uh, don't you know? Don't launch Bitcoin, which was the nickname for the for the British CM, uh, CNBC CBDC, and um, uh, instead embrace crypto. You've got a choice to you know. You either do what the Chinese have done and say we're going to have a central bank digital currency and ban crypto because then you can invoke K 
capital controls. Mm. And by the way, the kids in China don't particularly like the central bank digital currency. They'd much rather use Alipay, uh, which is which is cool. And so it's not really going to work. I think it's, you know, the governments, they, they can force people, I suppose, but, but I don't think it's going to work naturally. And uh, I'm glad to say that in this country, they took that same view um, and, and said, OK, we're, we're going we're gonna, to double down saying, we, you know, the Chancellor said we, we love crypto and just a few weeks ago. But of course, I think he was saying that and I think he was communicating to the FCA and the Bank of England who had put out lots of negative propaganda on crypto. Saying, well, you know, enough. Can, can we, can we, can we find ways to make this work? And so I think it was a, it was a, it was a message. And he wasn't saying you've got to allow crypto products and so forth. He was just sort of saying, you know, we are open for business. Yeah. Um, because I've made very clear in my letter, and I'm not suggesting that that changed his mind, but you know, there are a hundred <laughs> letters like it. That the I, the the implication is we're close for business. People are not sure. People yeah. think that it's illegal in this country. They're not sure. Yeah. So please tell them that it's legal. And um, and so I think that that's that's been 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 really really important. But you've got to you've got to say that there's either going to be um, um, an active crypto sector, which um, of which stable coins go hand in hand, or you go down the totalitarian central bank digital currency route. Now, yeah. that's not to say that you couldn't say I want to have a stable coin that banks directly with the Bank of England. There would be nothing wrong with that. You know, mm-hmm. rather make it a money money market fund with dodgy paper inside it. Would you rather just have, you know, clean break with the central bank in any country? That would be a superior stable coin. That would make it like cash. Yeah, electronic cash. Because that's what cash is, isn't it? It's not a money market fund. It's it's the real deal. And and so it it wouldn't be, it would be okay to have that. But you don't want the central bank having lots of data, not because you don't trust them today, but because you don't know what's going to happen in the future and some bad government will come along and use it all for the wrong reasons. And it's um, it's an Orwellian nightmare, basically the idea yeah. of, 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 of a central bank digital currency, and and stable coins should be you know experimental things. They should be issued by J.P. Morgan, BlackRock, Barclays Bank, PayPal, Microsoft. You know what I mean? I mean mm. all, all the existing players like Dodgy Tether or Very Nice Circle. Um, it doesn't. I don't really mind. Um, but you just, you just want to have a vibrant system, and these will engage with financial assets of all kinds. So you know bonds and equities. Um, will be traded with stable coins in the future, yeah. and 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 just think how much more fun a, um, a crypto bond would be. You know, paying paying interest by the sort of second or something, and yeah. encoding all these different features and you know decent data publicly available, yeah. uh, rather than sort of hoarded by the lucky few. You know, all this sort of stuff, and um, you know, I think it's an exciting future. But it but there's a an uprooting the financial system. It's not something you do overnight. It, no. it's, a, it's a slow, careful journey, and the regulators have every right to um, to make sure that all the major changes are are, um, are done properly. So I'm, yeah. I'm with them on that, but I just wish they'd be a bit more accepting of the experiment, like they would have, like they were with the internet. Yeah, Charles, listen, a great conversation. Um, we explored a lot of um, different areas, and you have an incredible ability just to um, take complex things and make them make them simple. So I, I appreciate that, and. Yeah, exciting times. I love seeing these new ecosystems evolve and adjust and grow. And, you know, relatively, it has been quite quick. And you're representative at, at ByteTree on starting something very small uh, from nothing and then growing as, you know, markets adapt. So look forward to uh, following your story and uh, best of luck at ByteTree. Thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Cheers. Cheers.